Well, good morning. It's good to see y'all. Hey, uh, last week we began this series uh, that we've uh, decided to call Unapologetic uh, with the understanding that like you know where we're coming from. And we, when we say unapologetic, we don't mean rude. We don't mean somebody who's a jerk. Uh, to be uh, unapologetic as a Christian simply means that you are unashamed of Christ. Like you're unashamed of his word, like regardless of the cost. Like this is the believer who understands that all of their life is a test of their loyalty. Like you face it every day, every decision, every relationship, every opportunity is a test of your loyalty. And so uh, this is the believer who will ask the question, what would unapologetic loyalty look like in this specific situation? And of course, where we are in our culture today, uh, we have to ask that uh, question with uh, increased frequency because we've already passed through all three stages of a moral revolution. As we saw last week, what was condemned is now celebrated. And what was celebrated is now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate this change are themselves condemned. And so on this side of that moral revolution, we know as followers of Christ, it's not safe. Unless, of course, you're willing to compromise everything it means to follow Christ in the first place. As we saw uh, from uh, Professor Robert George of Princeton University, a tame Christian, a Christian who is ashamed of the gospel or who is willing to act publicly as if he or she were ashamed is still socially acceptable. But a Christian who makes it clear that he or she is not ashamed must be prepared to take risks and make sacrifices. And so the question for this morning is, are you prepared? Like, are you prepared to take risks and make sacrifices to remain unapologetically loyal to Christ? Because guys, there's no room for compromise. Like Jesus Himself made this abundantly clear to His disciples as He was sending them out uh, to do ministry. He's prepared His 12 disciples. He's sending them out to minister without Him being there physically with them. And He tells them that everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I also will acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, I also will deny before My Father who is in heaven. And so we don't need to shrink back, deny, be ashamed. We don't need to apologize for Jesus. You know, this week I read a couple of different articles about just the, the common language, the common verbiage that's being used in these cultural apologies that are being offered on, you know, uh, in, in culture for something that you did in the past. You kind of, you know how it, how it goes. Something is, uh, that has been long forgotten. It resurfaces. You know, something you tweeted long ago, something you did, a photograph of you when you were in high school or college. And in fear of being canceled, these people, usually celebrities or politicians, uh, respond 
uh, in very much the same way. You can look at their apologies side by side, and they use a lot of the same languages. That language they start with regret, with uh, a statement like "I was ignorant." I was misguided. I was stupid. I was wrong. I was insensitive. And as a result of that was, now there's something you're dealing with. I am embarrassed. Like I am saddened. I am sorry. I am ashamed. And then you make a promise for the future, right? And the promise usually goes something like this. I will take the time to listen Like, I I will be for now on in a season of learning from other voices. I will educate myself. And on and on and on. Like, they're afraid of being canceled, and so they lead with an apology, often for something that either wasn't wrong, or it's something you did when you're 15 years old. I didn't do anything that wasn't stupid when I was 15 years old. How about you? Like everything, like I can, I need to apologize. Everything I did before I was about 35, just forget that altogether, right? And that's why I've decided to call this series Unapologetic because it is my hope that the repetition of that term unapologetic will wake us up to the, to the insanity of our cultural moment. Like the spirit of the age, like I said last week, wants to convert us and one key step in that conversion process is to make us ashamed to feel ashamed and need to apologize and usually it starts this way the first things we need to apologize for were things that are long past things like the crusades or the spanish inquisition or the salem witch trials as if any of us had anything to do with us that most of us don't know anything about them except what we see in popular media. Now we, want, we need to apologize for the Crusades, but we don't need to apologize for, I don't know, uh, the church inventing hospitals. Yeah, that was us. The church inventing universities are individual human rights. All of those things were invented by the church of Jesus Christ and flow right out of the Gospel. But we're apologizing for the Crusades, for the Spanish Inquisition. And then next, you know, we, the church needs to apologize for its complicity in any way with slavery, which certainly was terrible. But we forget the fact that it was Christians who led the abolitionist movement both in the United States and England. And we were the first countries in all of history to abolish slavery wholesale. But, you know, we don't mention that. We don't mention hospitals. We don't mention universities. We don't mention the abolitionist movement. We just need to be ashamed and we need to apologize. And, of course, the spirit of the age, never content, next requires Christians to apologize for holding to Christian teaching. Any teaching that is an issue, a moral issue, or whatever that places you on the wrong side of history, we need to apologize for. And guys, sadly, some professing Christians comply with that out of fear for being considered unloving, unkind. Remember, that's the kryptonite for the Christian in this culture. And then finally, the spirit of the age really goes after what he was after all along, which is... The church really needs to apologize for God, right? 
I mean, God, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament especially, man, He's scary. He's dangerous. He's unloving. Like we need to distance ourselves from Him. And sadly, guys, once again, some Christians comply. Like they redefine God to be more sensitive to the spirit of the age. Like the mega church where the pastor has said repeatedly that we need to actually unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Because the God of the Old Testament and the writings there are offensive to many as if you could open up the New Testament and understand any of it without the context of the Old Like I know of one church out of just sensitivity to those who have grown up in this patriarchy have actually, it's a church in our own area that has redefined God because we don't want to think of God in masculine terms because that can be offensive. And so they say we still believe in the Trinity, but they define the Trinity this way. Uh, We believe in the Trinity in God, Jesus, and Spirit. And so they believe in a God who's not a father. Jesus, who's not a son and a spirit that is not holy. Like, why are we letting the enemies of the cross define who we are and what we believe? Guys, it's time to stop apologizing. St. Augustine put it this way. He says, 17 centuries ago, You ought to say plainly that you do not believe the gospel of Christ. For to believe what you please and not to believe what you please is to believe yourselves and not the gospel. Okay, you say you're a Christian? Just be honest with yourself. You're not, right? Because Christ defines what it means to be a Christian. And so if you want to believe what you want to believe and disbelieve what you want to disbelieve, that's okay. But you're not believing the Gospel. You're believing in yourself. Jesus defines what it means to be a Christian. And I'll see interviews with people and read interviews with people who claim to be Christian yet deny the Trinity. Deny the unique person and work of Christ. Deny that Jesus is uniquely the only way to God. There's something, but it's not Christian. And so last week we asked the question, how should we respond to this spirit of the age? And by spirit of the age, that term refers to the kind of defining mood or the narrative of our culture. It's the prevailing spirit of our times. It's the set of ideas and beliefs, the trajectory of this moment in history. Like the German equivalent of spirit of the age is the term zeitgeist, if you've ever heard that term. Now we're going to use the term spirit of the age because none of y'all look German or speak German, I guess. And so uh, the term spirit of the age, we're using it really for a couple of very important reasons. The first one is this. When we use this term spirit of the age, it tells us what we are up against. Like it really explains and identifies our primary enemy. And spoiler alert, it's not a political party. And it's not your neighbor who lives down the street who lives an alternative lifestyle to yours. These are people who have simply been enslaved 
by the spirit of the age, enslaved by the same ideologies that they are implicit, like complicit in promoting. Like they've given themselves to the spirit of the age and in doing so they become slaves to it. As 2 Peter 2.19 says, you are a slave to whatever controls you. And that thought, that idea, that ideology that they've given themselves to has become the Lord of their life. Now those who are promoting these narratives of the culture, the spirit of the age, are not innocent, but neither are we, right? They're not innocent any more than we are, and they did not come up with, but they did not come up with this on their own. Like identifying the primary agent behind all of this helps us understand and make sense of the speed at which our culture has changed. I mean, did you just wake up one day and realize, man, what happened to my country? Like what happened to morals? What happened to the family? What happened to my culture? When did this thing become okay? How is no one laughing at this? And just pointing it out, the emperor is naked and nobody's saying it. How did this happen so fast? (laughs) Well, guys, there's no way this moral revolution could have happened as fast as it did unless Satan were behind it. Scripture calls Satan the God of this world. Lowercase g. He's the father of lies and the book of Revelation calls him the deceiver of the whole world. And so when we call it out, when we recognize that the spirit of the age, what we're saying is we know what Ephesians 6.12 means when it says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness over the spirit of the age and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So first, using the term spirit of the age helps us know what we're really up against. And second, it helps us know exactly how we are to respond. And that's what I want to continue to talk to you about today, just about how to to respond to the spirit of the age and where to join the fight. Like, how do we join the fight? And this is how we join it. First of all, we need to understand that uh, this isn't simply a culture war. Like, There's lots of books written, lots of ink being spilled on the idea of culture war. This is not simply a culture war. This is a spiritual war. And we need to prepare ourselves for spiritual warfare. As Paul writes to the church of Corinth in, in 2 Corinthians 10.3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war the way the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, I've been reading through the Old Testament doing this shred and as of today, uh, beginning on the 1st, I'm in Isaiah chapter 30. And so I've read a lot. I've spent a lot of hours just reading the Bible. And i got to tell you... Uh, Like, we have an enemy. 
Like we are in the midst of a spiritual battle and we need to prepare ourselves for that. We need to not fight the way the world fights. Like in the book of Isaiah, just this week I read, listen, uh, don't fear what the world fears. Don't dread what they dread. God is the one we ought to fear. Don't call conspiracy what everyone else is calling conspiracy. Don't get on the cultural, like revolution, cultural warfare bandwagon and realize that we are in a spiritual war. And so last week we looked at the charge that Jesus gave to His 12 disciples before He sent them out into the world to minister, like I said, without Him being there present with them. Remember, He told them, first you need to adjust your expectations. Like you're not going to just show up and people will be like, finally, you're here. We're so excited. This is exactly what we wanted. Don't expect that. Be prepared instead to be unpopular. Like people aren't going to like you because they don't like me. Okay? Like if they called me Satan, what do you think they're going to do with you? But do not fear them. Like you don't need to give yourself over to fear. In fact, over and over in this short passage, passage, he references fear and anxiety among his disciples as they go out. And then remember, it's all about Jesus. The issue isn't the issue. Jesus isn't the issue. I mean, Jesus is the issue. We need to always bring it back to him. We need to remain unflinchingly and unapologetically loyal to Him. And maybe after last week's sermon, you were thinking like many of the folks I talked with were thinking, uh, okay, but but then what? I mean, I get that. Like, I'm ready. Like, I, I mean, I know. Like, I don't expect everybody to love me or to love my opinions. I mean, that's a given. Okay? I, I know I need to be prepared and I am ready to be unpopular. And I'm not going to live in fear. I'm praying not to live in fear to them. And I do want to make it all about Jesus. I always want to make it about the, the gospel. But like, then what? Like, what do I say? Like, what do I say to people when they ask me hard questions? Like, what do I say when they, when they ask me why I believe what I believe? What do I say? Like, what do I do if I'm accused of being unloving? are intolerant. Like, how do I respond to that? Like, how do I respond if asked, why do you think your way is better than every other way? Like, what do you say when somebody says that? Like, what do I tell someone who just thinks I'm, I'm arrogant? Like, for holding on to things, believing things that put me at odds with the spirit of the age. Well, the good news is is that Jesus answered that concern as well. In fact, remember, He did that because He's sending His disciples out not to condemn the world. Like He's not sending them village to village to announce judgment. He's sending them out village to village to minister, to reach the lost, not to call down fire on them. Like the church even today exists to rescue sinners. Like we're here to set the captives free. Like we're here to fight for those who don't think like us and who don't believe like us. We're here to fight for those who like we were following the course of the spirit of the age. So what do we say in the midst of that kind of opposition? Jesus tells us, beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 10, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep, In the midst of wolves, 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Like you got to think, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes looking at the world today, I'm tempted to think it's so much harder than it used to be to be a Christian. It's so much harder to take a stand now than it used to be. Like it used to be easier. And yet I read this and I think, well, it wasn't easy then. Like, was there ever an easy time to genuinely identify with and take a stand with Jesus? Jesus says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To And hear these, like, circle these three words. What's this all happening for? To bear witness. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Like your suffering, your trial, the persecution has a greater purpose. It's it's like refining you and it's getting the gospel out. Like your suffering is God's megaphone to the world. Like your opposition is actually an opportunity. But we usually don't see it that way. We think of it this way. We think like, like, like I'm off course. Like this is a rabbit trail. This is wrong. But understand, this is not a departure from God's plan. This is actually God's plan at work. This is not even an obstacle. It's an open door. I mean, when we as unflinching and unapologetic Christians are willing to pay a price, be it ever so small or great, when we're willing to suffer in any way for the sake of Christ or the Gospel, it validates the message to those who hear it. That's what Paul was talking about when he wrote the church that he wanted to fill up what was lacking in his body. Fill up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Like was Paul saying that in some way Jesus did not suffer enough for the sins of the world? No. What he's saying here is, listen, when I am willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, when I'm willing to suffer for Him, that is how the Gospel is presented to the nations and they take notice that it is true because I was willing to pay a price. Like the story I read years ago of of a missionary. uh, It was a missionary conference where a, a native of an African tribe got up and told the story of how after he was converted, like he decided to take this message to his own village. And as he showed up with the message of the Gospel to his village and started sharing it, those in the village came out and started beating him and knocked him unconscious, unconscious, thought he was dead and left him outside of the village by the riverbank, left him for dead. About a you know, a few hours later, he, uh, you know, woke up and his first thought was, I must have told it wrong. Like, I must have told it wrong because this message of hope is so amazing and beautiful. I know they'll want to hear it. And so he kind of bandaged himself, cleaned himself up, and went directly back to the village. 
And he started preaching Christ again to his own people. And this time they came out and they began to beat him all the more and even had strips of barbed wire that they were whipping him with. And they beat him to a point where they thought he was dead. And they threw him out again by the riverbank. And this time it was a full day before he woke up. And again, his first thought was, I did it wrong. Like, I need to make it clearer. And he prayed and he cleaned himself up and he stumbled back into the village. But this time before he could open his mouth, they jumped on him and began to beat him. But before he went unconscious, unconscious, he noticed one thing that was different. The women in the village were standing around the outskirts of the men who were beating him and they were weeping. And this time when he woke up, he wasn't by the riverbank. He was, in, he was in one of the huts and they had nursed him back to health. And the reason they had nursed him back to health is they thought, this message is so important, it must be true. For him to beat, uh, be beaten like this three times in a row, it must be true. And his whole village responded to the Gospel with a yes. Guys, opposition is... It is an opportunity. All opposition creates an opportunity. And you may be thinking it's harder than it used to be to share the gospel. That's good news. That just means more opportunities. Verse 19, it tells us how to respond specifically. He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. Once again, don't fear. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. See, what Jesus is saying here is that the faithful witness does not need to rehearse their lines. The faithful witness, the one who is intent in their heart on remaining unapologetically loyal to Christ, does not have to have an answer for every question that might be asked. Like they don't have to have a comeback for any scenario they may face. And this, I mean, we know this is often what shuts us up in the first place from sharing the gospel. Because we think, like, I wouldn't know what to say. I mean, what if they ask me about this or that? Or they have, you know, they, what if they're more informed than I am? What if they have questions that I couldn't remotely begin to answer? Or we think, well, they wouldn't want to listen to me anyway. We prejudge them as hard-hearted and uninterested. And we think, well, they wouldn't want to hear something I have to say. I mean, who am I? But Jesus simply says, hey, guys, don't worry about that. That's above your pay grade. You don't need to worry about that. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say in that hour. Well, I don't know what to say. Well, you're not in that hour yet. You're not facing the situation yet. But if you step into that situation with a willing heart to remain loyal to Christ and open your mouth, the Spirit of God Himself will fill it. Can I just tell you, let me explain first of all what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean you, it's, it's okay to be unprepared. He's not, he's not saying don't be, don't be prepared. He's not saying that. It also doesn't mean that you don't need to study. Like you don't need to study to show yourself approved as a 
workman who doesn't need to be ashamed because he rightly handles the Word of God. It doesn't mean be unprepared. It doesn't mean don't study. It doesn't mean that you don't need to pray for for boldness or clarity or an open door or faithfulness. And it doesn't mean that you don't need to think deeply about your faith. Like Jesus isn't saying when He says, don't worry you know, about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. He, that's not Jesus' way of saying, hey, just wing it. Jesus isn't saying just wing it. Because the same Holy Spirit that is going to speak through you in that moment inspired Peter to write these words to a church that was facing a very similar situation. He writes in 1 Peter 3, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Like, circle that word zealous in your Bible. Like, that's the context of the person's heart who he's writing to. This is somebody who's psyched about doing the right thing for God. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't be intimidated. But what's the alternative to your fear? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense. The word there is the word from which we get apologetic. A defense of the faith. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So it's interesting because Jesus tells the disciples not to worry about what they're going to say. And one of those disciples, 30 years later, writes to his disciples and says, hey, be prepared to give an answer. So who's right, Jesus or Peter? Well, they both are because they're actually saying the, right, the, the exact same thing. Because when Peter writes, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, what he means is this. He means prepare your heart to open your mouth. Prepare your heart to open your mouth. Let me explain this. Apologetics, like the, the art of defending your faith, apologetics is actually more about preparing your heart than it is about preparing your mind. Like some of you think, well, you know what? Uh, I, I don't have time to read 40 books and sit through three seminars and, and, and download five new podcasts. Like, I, I mean, and, and even if I did, I wouldn't retain it anyway. Like, I just don't have that kind of a mind. There's so many people out there that I work with who are sharper than me. They're smarter than me. Like, I don't even know where to start in explaining the gospel to them. That's not the answer. The answer is this. Prepare your heart. To open your mouth. How do you prepare your heart to open your mouth? Well, we've been singing about it. Setting your affection on Christ. Giving Him your full attention. And pledging your allegiance to Him. Affection. Attention. Allegiance. That's how you prepare your heart to open your mouth. It's kind of like... Uh, Recently, I spoke with somebody who was telling me about a pastor's conference they had gone to years ago. And at this pastor's conference, 
this famous preacher got up and he was saying to this crowd of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors, if you come to the mor- t- tomorrow morning's Bible study, I'm going to teach you how you can prepare an expository sermon in only 15 minutes. And so all their ears kind of perked up and they thought, man, 15 minutes? Like it takes me hours and hours and hours. How do you do that? And so a bigger than usual crowd gathered for that early morning Bible study. And he just got up and said, this is how you prepare an expository message on Scripture in only 15 minutes. Study the Bible 20 hours a week for 20 years. And then he sat down. And I'm sure most of the people there thought they were gypped. But guys, that's a great answer. What he was saying was, what are you filling your mind with? Like you only have one life. What are you renewing your mind with? Like fill your mind with the Word of God and there's going to come a day in your life when you're called on to preach and you're given a text and you're given 15 minutes to be ready and God will show up. And you'll understand what the passage means because you've poured your life into it. Like it's the whole idea of word before world that we've been talking about. How's that working for you? 16 days in. How are you doing with that? Like for me, it's really challenging. I I, I normally would get up. There's a couple podcasts I'll listen to. I'll check news feeds. I'll do things like that. But instead... You know, spending my mind, giving my thoughts to the Word of God instead. That's really been a healthy practice. So placing the Word before the world, choosing to be unapologetically loyal, and then opening your mouth and let the Spirit speak for you. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever had a conversation with a loved one or a neighbor or a friend, whatever, where you opened your mouth And something you had read, something you had studied, a verse you had never tried to memorize, an answer that was just the perfect answer somehow, magically, supernaturally, for that moment, came out of your stupid mouth. And you're like, where did that come from? That's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God takes His Word and brings it with power. Prepare your heart. To open your mouth. So what are you giving Him to work with? What are you renewing your mind on? Are you prepared to take risks and make sacrifices to remain unapologetically loyal to Christ? So guys, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to be unapologetically loyal about the Scripture. Unapologetically, unapologetic about the church unapologetic about sin, unapologetic about the gospel, unapologetic about eternity. But it all starts here. Like, do you believe that God is still God? Like, do you believe that He can do and will do everything that He has said? Like we've said at the beginning of this series that there is a great danger in being a tame Christian. And it all starts with having a tame God. Do you have a tame God? Like we play it safe because we have a safe God. We shrink back from culture. 
because we've forgotten that our God is a consuming fire. Many Christians have so domesticated the God that they believe in that He is no longer one to be feared. There's no dread of Him. He's no threat. But understand, guys, God is the one who defines God, not us. Just like Christ defines the Christian, God defines God. And a God who cannot command you could never comfort you. A God that is not dangerous could never defend you. See, if you have a safe faith in a safe God, when the spirit of the age pushes in, you will shrink back out of fear of them instead of out standing firm in the fear of the Lord. You'll be what Jim Elliott, Christian martyr to the Alka Indians, wrote about 70 years ago before he went to the mission field as he looked at the, the safe and passive church of his day. He wrote these words, We are so utterly ordinary, so commonplace. While we profess to know a power the 20th century does not reckon with. But we are harmless and therefore unharmed. We are spiritual pacifists, non-militants, conscientious objectors in this battle to the death with principalities and powers in high places. Meekness must be had for contact with man, but brass, outspoken boldness is required to take part in the comradeship of the cross. We are sideliners, coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. And then he concludes with this, the world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. Now that's a good prayer. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. Guys, if safety is your driving concern, you will never be a danger to the spirit of the age. And so choose. Because I've been reading through the Old Testament, there are a number of times where God gives Israel a chance to choose what they're going to do and who they're going to serve. I choose today who you will serve. Choose today who you will fear. Choose today whose side you are on. I mean, how different would we be as a church if we saw ourselves as the dangerous ones in this culture instead of thinking of the spirit of the age as the one we ought to fear? An unflinching, unapologetic, spirit-filled Christian is of great danger to the spirit of this age. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that that is true now, just like it was true 2,000 years ago, just like it was true 70 years ago for Jim Elliott. Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. But we are, because of Christ, more than conquerors. And so, Lord, we don't need to fear what they fear. We don't need to 
dread what they dread. We don't need to call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Instead, we need to trust You and be dangerous, we pray in Christ. Amen. Guys, as we come to a time of communion, in Psalm 50, God confronts mankind with what is their central problem. He writes in verse 21, God's, God's Word Himself. This is God speaking. He says, you thought I was just like you. Like you've substituted your own ideas about God and you've made me in your image. You fashioned a God that is not God and then you live accordingly. I mean, literally the passage says, you thought the I am was just like you. You're believing what you want to believe so you can do what you want to do. But God is the one who defines God. In fact, every true thing you know about God is because He's revealed it to you. Then He goes on to say these, to me, terrifying words. Understand this, you who forget God, or I will tear you apart and there will be no one to rescue you. I mean, think about that for a moment. Have you ever forgotten God? Have you lived as if God is not a part of your life? God is an afterthought? I mean, I, I, I have. My whole life was forgetting God and forgetting the things of God. And so what is the punishment someone who forgets God deserves? Well, ultimately, it's to be forgotten by God Himself. Like That's what we deserve. Because we forgot God, we deserve to be forgotten. But see, this table reminds us that on the cross, when Jesus cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? That in that moment, Jesus was forgotten so that we would always be remembered. That's the message of the Gospel. Like we deserve, because we have forgotten God, to be forgotten. Because we fashioned a God that looks like us and acts like us and thinks like us. Because we have run the other way following the course of this world and the spirit of the age, we deserve to be forgotten. But on the cross, as Jesus bore our sins, He was forgotten for us so that we would always be remembered. So I'd like you to stand. And as this next song is played, I'd like you to make your way to the front and take your elements of communion and take them back to your seat. And we'll take those together. We practice open communion. So if you're a follower of Christ, place your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You're welcome to join us at this table. Let's pray. God bless this song, these words, this time, this celebration of communion with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's sing together. Hey, as we close, I want you to take a moment. I just want you to look around at the people in this room. Look at, look at your brothers and sisters. Understand 
that you are an absolute terror to the spiritual forces of this present darkness. See, any Christian, any follower of Christ filled with the Spirit who wants to remain loyal to Christ, when they open their mouth, the Spirit of God will give you an utterance that will terrify the enemy. You are the dangerous ones. So don't go out in fear. Let Him fear you because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Like I love the story that is comical in the book of Acts where you have three Jewish exorcists who try to cast out a demon and they say, we command you in the name of Christ that Paul preaches, be gone. And the demons speak back and say, well, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but who the heck are you? And then they jump on them and beat them and strip them naked and they run away naked and bruised. They lost, right? Isn't that a crazy story? What's crazy about it is they only mentioned Paul because the exorcist did. The same could be said of all of us in this room who love Jesus and know Jesus and want to remain loyal to Him as we open our mouths <laughs> I know Jesus and I know those guys and gals. Ooh, watch out. God bless you, church. Y'all have a great week.